Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, Under Pressure, with a message titled, Fearing God. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 21, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. You know, it's been a few years ago now, but I remember a conversation I once had with a young woman when I myself was a young pastor. She was speaking about some specifics in her lifestyle, and that's all the details I want to give. But I had said to her, listen, your heavenly father wouldn't be pleased with that. And she responded, look, unless God approves of my approach to life, I've simply got news for God, then I don't want anything to do with him. Well, I suppose in some way when you hear that, you might think that's not really that strange. People talk that way all the time. But this woman had grown up in a Christian home and, might I say, was quite conversant in Christian theology. She knew her Bible well, but she was insistent. God had better pay attention, she said, or he's going to lose me. Well, she didn't quite say it like that, but that was the upshot of what she was saying. And I suppose I was too stunned to know what to say. I mean, I didn't say anything, and away she went. I mean, she kept coming to church for a time, joined a Bible study group, carried on as before. And, and might I add, she wasn't involved in a gross sin. I mean, that wasn't it, but it was sin. And what especially struck me was how insistent she was. God better look out or he's going to lose me and maybe others as well. And, and as I replay that scene now, I know she eventually left the church and I wonder where she left off. I mean, did she go through her life believing that God was afraid of her? She might not believe in him. Now, I make mention of that because of what we're about to read in today's text. I also make mention of it here because the idea of fear of God has largely disappeared from most Christian consciousness. And yes, before I'm done, I'm going to explain 1 John 4, verse 18, where John says that perfect love casts out all fear. Now, there, fear deals with a specific context, and I'm going to explain that. But let me get back to the matter of fear of God. In our day, it's become quite common to hear believers talk about anger towards God. I'm angry with God, a Christian will say. And to that, a counselor will say, well, that's okay. You know, God you know, needs to hear your anger, and he's big enough to take it. And out of this has developed a view of God that has almost nothing to do with the God of the Bible. I mean, forgotten is Revelation 15, 3 and 4. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, not mine, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? I mean, how can you be angry with a God who does all things in perfect righteousness? Shouldn't you put your hand to your mouth and bow your head and say, Your ways are upright and just, not mine. Teach me to fear you. So, Let's get to today's text, 1 Peter 1, 17 to 21. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So the theme of the paragraph that we've just read is this, conduct yourselves with fear. 
Now, why does Peter teach that? Let's remember the context. We remember that Peter is writing believers who are hard-pressed. They're being persecuted. They're not to despair. They're actually a privileged group of people. They should set their hopes fully on Christ's coming, and he rewards his people. I mean, given that reality, Peter has just finished instructing God's people that their calling in life, therefore, is to be holy even as God is holy. Now he gives motivation for a holy life. Let's see if I can break the paragraph I've just read into three subparagraphs. The first point Peter wants to make is the main point, verse 17. It's a call to fear God. We're going to discuss that in just a little moment. The second point Peter makes, that's in verse 18 and 19. Remember he says that God redeemed you at a great cost. And then the third point in verses 20 to 21, God's plan to redeem you happened in eternity past. Okay, I think we're ready to begin. Let's begin with the main point of this paragraph that's found in verse 17. And if you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So let's start at the beginning. If you call on him as father. Now, Peter's assuming here something that we should also assume. All Christians pray to God regularly. It's the mark of a believer. We pray to God our Father. Paul said the very same thing when he wrote to the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. He wrote, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's it. All saints, no matter where they are, in every single place where followers of Jesus are to be found, they are known by this. They call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, typically, here's what Christians do. We call to the Father in the name of the Son, in the power of the Spirit. But here's the point. We call on God. We pray. We worship. We ask for things. And when we're in trouble, we come before the throne. We are always in constant interaction with the Father. And so the statement, if you call on him, well, that's a statement that's easily answered. It should be answered in this way. Of course we call on him. I mean, after all, we are believers. Oh, very good. Since you do that, says Peter, do you also know that the one who is your father is also the one who judges every human being on earth impartially? So imagine you're a kid, and for some reason, you appear before court. You know, and imagine your father is the judge, and imagine also that he's known for his fairness. Are you going to get a special deal? Well, no, you're not, and that's Peter's point. Membership in God's family, as we know, is a great privilege that comes with many blessings, including eternal life, but this privilege will not give us a special pass when it comes to disobedience. Now, I can, I can just hear the objection. People will say, wait a minute, my sins, past, present, and future, have been dealt with in the cross. Oh, yes, yes, they have. So let me explain. Peter's not talking about the final judgment. There the Bible's very clear. In the final judgment, all believers in Christ will be judged not on the basis of their own spotty record, but on the basis of Christ's perfect and pure life. 
Our sins were dealt with in the cross, and our performance is dealt with in Christ's righteous life. And furthermore, I don't think Peter is speaking about what Paul is speaking about in Romans 14, verse 12, where he says, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. See, in Romans 14, Paul is speaking of the judgment seat, which is a judgment for believers unto rewards. Now, I'm sure that's not what Peter has in mind here in this passage. And I say that because Peter uses the word fear. And that would be inappropriate to speak about fear for believers in the final judgment. And by the way, that's what John is speaking about in 1 John 4, verse 18. He says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, for fear, he says, has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So listen carefully. No Christian fears punishment of eternal judgment because Christ has taken that from us. He was punished, and in his punishment, the justice of God is satisfied. So very well. What's Peter talking about? And the answer is, he's speaking about something that's going on right now not something in the future. There is, in God's dealings with us today, an activity where he is both blessing believers as well as disciplining them. So go to 1 Peter 4.17, for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. See, there is a judgment that God is now applying to the household of God that is to Christians. What kind of a judgment? Well, listen to Hebrews 12.5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And the rest of the passage explains that God makes a distinction between punishment and discipline. Punishment refers to the final judgment. Discipline refers to some of the hardships that we go through now. Discipline is correction for wayward behavior. It's God looking to halt us in our way of sin. According to Hebrews and Peter, God brings hardship and sometimes suffering into our lives to correct us. So Peter is talking about fearing God's discipline. And by the way, if you don't know that's what God is doing in your life, you'll fail to understand the experiences you're going through. And we need to show fear of God Because if we willfully sin, God will intervene and discipline us. Back to the Bible Canada is approaching its fiscal year end, making June a financially critical month for the ministry. Over these past few years, Back to the Bible Canada has been committed to ensuring that in unpredictable times, you can rely on our Bible teaching and engagement resources to provide the comfort and guidance of God's Word. This year, to ensure we reach our goal, a few generous ministry friends who share our heart for Bible teaching have offered to help us reach our year-end target of $409,000 by pledging to match every dollar you donate up to $100,000. This will double the impact of your gift. There is no better time to consider supporting this ministry than right now. We'd be so grateful for any gift you might choose to give. So for more information or to donate, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I drive a motorcycle. I love it. 
I'm a lifetime motorcyclist. But my love for the sport hasn't stopped me from having a, a healthy fear of what an accident might do to me. I have therefore taken the motorcycle safety course as well as, you know, try to regularly practice things like, you know, riding in lane dominant position and keeping enough distance between myself and the vehicle ahead. And when coming to a stop at a traffic light, I always look for the possible lane of escape if something untoward should happen behind me. I have habits when approaching an intersection designed to make myself visible. I even wear visible clothing. I make sure I have enough lights on my bike. I could go on and on. See, what I'm trying to say is that the joy of riding, that isn't incongruent with a healthy fear of what might occur if I forget the lessons on safety that have been drilled into me. And that's not dissimilar to my relationship with God. My heavenly Father is an impartial judge, and if I sin... And if I remain in it, he will discipline me in such a way that it might even be painful. And a healthy fear of God is a deterrent from sinning. And those who don't understand that keep on sinning and living without fear because they don't know how God operates. See, I love what one writer said. Have a holy self-suspicion, he said. That is, don't trust yourself, trust the Holy Spirit. Be suspicious of the tendencies of your flesh but also have a holy fear of offending God. Fear is not cowardice. It doesn't debase you. It actually elevates you because fear of God drowns out lower fears. I mean, do you fear offending the society in which you live? See, if you fear God more than you fear men, you don't. But if you don't fear God, I promise you, you will fear men. And so Peter is giving motivation for living a holy life. Fear God. Understand that you would rather displease the entire world than displease your God. And so when the world makes demands on you, bow to our sacred idols, they say, don't bow, fear God. Now, having been given the motivation for holy living, Peter now tells us how precious holy living is. Verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, we're ransomed, says Peter, and that's a precious word. You know, to be ransomed means that in your prior life, you were a slave or a hostage of some sort, but that someone has paid a price to set you free. Every single believer is a ransom story. We were hostages to a futile life that we had inherited from our forefathers. Now, we might have expected Peter to talk about our futile ways of life, which we had in our old sinful nature. And had Peter said that, that would be true. But Peter wants to emphasize something different here. You'll notice that in verse 17, it ended by demanding that we live in holy fear, watch this, during the time of our exile. And the idea is that the life of every believer is now in exile from the wider culture in which they live. And now Peter plays on that idea and tells us that we became exiles when we were ransomed from the culture in which we lived. And when Peter speaks of the futile ways we inherited from our ancestors, he means the accumulated traditions that make up any culture on earth. We inherited from our ancestors futility. Now, among the Jews, you know, that inheritance doesn't sound futile, does it? 
Paul would say in Romans 9, theirs is the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. It's an impressive list. But then remember also that theirs is the error of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Theirs also is the long history of rebellion. And so many among the people who should have been the first to welcome the Messiah were those who actually profoundly rejected him. That's futility. And among the Gentiles, especially those in the Greco-Roman world, some might argue they also had a very impressive history. I mean, the Greeks were the founders of modern-day philosophy, as well as modern-day government that would lead to, you know, democracies in our day. The Greeks had an impressive history. So did the Romans. I mean, you can visit any country that borders the Mediterranean to this day and find Roman roads and buildings still there after 2,000 years. Rome had the largest empire in history at that point in time. The Roman arch led to the ability to build things that were up to that point in time thought to be impossible. Their aqueducts were marvels of engineering. Roman law laid the foundation for our modern legal system. I mean, we could go on and on speaking about, you know, the Latin alphabet, the innovation in weaponry. The list is impressive. And you might wonder that Peter so quickly dismisses all of that as futile. But here we do Peter an injustice if that's what we think. He's speaking in terms of contrast. On the one hand, as impressive as these cultural items might be, they are perishable. The idea is that over time, they wear out. And that's true. All civilizations eventually go into decline and they never recover. They perish. The seeds of their destruction is already built into their empires. Rome was cruel. And that led to having ever-increasing enemies. Greco-Roman culture was overtly sensual, and it led to the destruction of the core of their civilization. Their gods were fickle. It led to treachery in their culture. In time, this elements of futility would lead to them perishing. That should seem obvious. They're perishable. But the precious blood of Christ from the spotless Lamb of God is not so. So let's stop for a minute and consider the blood of Christ. What are the effects of Christ spilling out his blood for us? Of course, his blood means that all of his followers have been forgiven of their sins. But did you know there's more? According to Hebrews 9.14, our consciences are now cleansed. According to Hebrews 10.19, it provides for us, that is, the blood of Christ provides for us, access to God in worship and prayer. According to 1 John 1 verse 7, we're sanctified through his blood, made ever more free from sin. According to Revelation 12 verse 11, his blood allows us to conquer the enemy, the accuser of the brethren. I mean, the effectiveness of the blood of Christ in creating a new culture, a new people of God, does what all of the cultures of the world couldn't do, produce something that's altogether enduring. And that brings us now to the third point of the paragraph. Speaking about the crucified lamb without spot, Peter says, verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. And what's so fascinating to me about that verse is that the previous section, Peter's been making the point that the culture that Jesus created through his blood is not perishable. Now he goes to the past and says it also had no point of beginning. To say that Jesus was foreknown from before the foundation of the world is to say at least two things. One is to say that he was foreordained or predestined or chosen. 
That is, before the creation of the world, God the Father had already firmly decided that he would send his Son into the world. That brings us to the second point. What the Father determined in the Son, look again at verse 19, that the Son would be without spot or blemish, that he would pour out his blood so that the sins of God's people would be forgiven, so that a new community would begin, so that we would have access to the presence of God through prayer. All of that the Father had determined in eternity past. Before the world came into being, before the universe existed, God had already determined that this is the role that his son would play. Now, I know, I know, some of us are confused by that. You know, are you saying that God had planned for his son to die on the cross before Adam and Eve sinned? And the answer is, yes, of course, that's exactly what happened. That Jesus would be the savior of a new humanity came from before the foundation of the world. See, the plan of salvation is not the plan to put the wheels back onto a wagon where the wheels had fallen off. The plan of salvation isn't reactionary to something gone bad. The plan of salvation is about God's glory from eternity past to eternity future. So let's get back to where Peter started. The Christians he's writing to are being persecuted, but they're in a great place because eternity is theirs. And so for that reason, as they struggle to live their lives as exiles in this earth, they are to remember that they have been called to form a new culture, a new people group characterized by holiness. And therefore, they and we should do two things. Number one, fear God, for he is determined to discipline his sinning children. And second, stand in awe and wonder at the amazing salvation that you have been given, which has no beginning and no end, which is eternal even as God is eternal. That's what it means to be God's people. John, a great message. Let me ask you this, though. You know, when, when we face difficulties, physical, economic, social, Should we consider these as disciplines from God? Yeah, that's such a good question. Uh, I'm going to give a broad definition of discipline, and that is discipline is God's correction. Um, It's not punishment. I'm going to say that any time that God wants to, you know, uh, correct our course or wants to uh, disciple us in a way that's uh, more attached to his kingdom than the kingdoms of this world. I mean, all of that is discipline. God uses everything to shape our faith so that we might be godlike. So um, think of all of these things and give thanks, but don't view them as punishment for something you've done wrong. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Under Pressure, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. At Back to the Bible Canada, it's our hope that your walk with Christ would be strengthened and encouraged through the wide variety of resources made available through so many different mediums to ensure Bible teaching you can trust is freely accessible to those who desire to know the Bible and our Lord more deeply. One listener wrote, It is a joy to listen to Dr. Newfeld and the staff of Back to the Bible Canada as they faithfully teach the Bible daily. It's a real blessing to hear the word daily for encouragement and exhortation. 
If you feel blessed by this ministry, can we ask you to help us reach our fiscal year-end goal of $409,000? This year, a few friends of the ministry have offered to match your gift dollar for dollar up to $100,000 to make this campaign a success. To make your gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.